Fear Itself is sponsored by Oto, the premium CBD brand ranging from drinks to skincare. One of my favorite products by Oto is their CBD Pillow Mist. A world first, it combines 30% CBD with Ayurvedic botanicals such as lavender and chamomile that are designed to aid sleep. CBD creates balance within the body which can help make it easier to drift off at night and also to stay asleep. And unlike a sleeping tablet, CBD does not make you feel drowsy. Falling asleep is something I've always really struggled with, having thoughts that go a million miles an hour around my head. The CBD pillow mist makes me feel a lot calmer and relaxed, ultimately giving me a better night's sleep. In Oto's extensive consumer trials, over 87% of users reported an improvement in sleep quality, with 92% also benefiting from improved mood, energy and concentration the next day. You can find these products and more at otocbd.com. Oto, find your space. I'm Benjamin Fry and I'm afraid of loss. Welcome to Fear Itself with me, Cressida Bonus. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with people about their personal stories around fear. In my experience, fear can be motivational, but it can also really hold me back, and I'm curious to understand this dynamic a bit better. How does fear show up? How do people try to hide it? How can we harness it? And what can we learn from it? Psychotherapist and author Benjamin Fry joins me this week to talk about his fear of loss. Benjamin's such an interesting guest and shares a lot of his personal experiences as well as his professional knowledge about mental health. He is really open about losing his mother when he was just a baby and how it impacted him and how losing work, money and his marriage in his late 30s culminated in a mental breakdown. After trying many treatments, Benjamin found a solution in a clinic which specialised in the nervous system and looking at how the problems we have with it can affect our mental health. He went on to set up a mental health clinic and a tech company specialising in work around the nervous system. He has also written three books, including The Invisible Lion, which we discuss in this episode. I wanted to know more about the nervous system and what it means for our mental health how it can help us heal unaddressed wounds and clean out the gunpowder, as Benjamin puts it. I've really learned so much from this conversation, and I hope you do too. Hello, Benjamin. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Uh, so after reading your book, How I Fucked Up My Life, I made it mean something. I realized that actually a lot of your teaching is about the importance of speaking out, naming your truth and surviving it. And I just wanted to talk about this more and um, talk about your experience of loss. Well, sure. Um, so I guess it's through my life, it's been one of the background fears that probably has been, when I was younger, so overwhelming, I wasn't aware of it at all. Uh, my early life was really kind of riven with loss. My mother was diagnosed with aplastic anemia when I was five months old and died when I was 11 months old. So really, since the beginning of my life, I was kind of dealing with losing my family. Uh, subsequent to that, I went to live with a friend of hers. I saw my father at weekends for about a year or so, I think, and then he uh, moved in with his second wife, and then I eventually went to move in with them. So really, by the time I was three, I suppose I'd lost already lost two families. Uh, you know, I'd lost my original parents, and then 
I guess the you know the, the new family I went to live with, I lost them. And all of this, of course, is before I can remember anything. Then subsequent to that, I had what most people would describe as an extraordinarily privileged life. I was capable at many things. My father was successful. I went to the best schools. I went to Oxford University. I had friends. I was reasonably athletic. I had everything anyone could appear to want. And yet the entire time, I was probably just surviving on the edge of a kind of sense of impending catastrophe all the time. So, you know, then I grew up and life, as it does for all of us, becomes more complicated and there's more at stake. I got mm. married, I had children, and I just spent most of my 20s and 30s in a permanent panic, which is rather uh, debilitating, rather disabling. And I think as a result of that, I became less and less good at providing for myself and my family. And this uh, eventually resulted in kind of financial chaos, which came to a culmination with the global financial chaos in 2008 and really just resulted in me losing all my money effectively and so I think that that something very powerful happened inside of me and it kind of revealed something on the inside that had been waiting mm. you know kind of trouble in my basement but you know really for me the kind of Achilles heel I think of my nervous system is this experience of loss. Yeah. Um, so I became progressively anxious and worried and then panicked and then, and I began to become quite unwell. I'd say I was quite seriously ill by the end. Uh, and it didn't help that my, uh, just before all of this began, my wife discovered that she was pregnant with our fifth child, which was not planned. <laughs> um, so there was a lot going on. And uh, actually, in the end, it just overwhelmed me completely. And I thought that the solution to my, the ultimate solution, the ultimate kind of panic button to press was an admission to uh, one of London's famous psychiatric hospitals. And that that would solve my problem. But the really scary thing was it was only when I got there and started to deal with what was considered to be this kind of premier mental health service, I realized how much trouble I was in because it was really terrible and really frightening. Um, and I realized that, you know, there was no silver bullet. I had no idea really what was wrong with me and neither did anyone else. And I was in big trouble. So I didn't get on very well with medication. I found that very uncomfortable, very difficult. Probably on some level was doing me some good when I was on antidepressants, but I came off them and then I tried some other drugs. And I just went back and forth and different doctors and nothing was really working. And I got worse and worse and worse. And I got more and more into a state, frankly, of just despair. Um, and it was awful for my family. You know, they were living with a ghost for a year. I mean, some of my kids are still not really over it. I just felt like I disappeared, like I was a zombie. And then eventually... I took up someone's recommendation to go to America to another clinic, psychiatric hospital, stroke rehab, got some treatment there, which was helpful, and then went into an aftercare unit there, which dealt with, uh, you know, as they described at the time, trauma or PTSD or the nervous system. And it was set up very specifically to work on the nervous system rather than, if you like, the things that people often think about as, I don't know, mental health solutions, such as talking about your problems or whatever. Um, and that's how I got well. And that's been my life ever since, really. Mm. And they said at the time that you had 
the worst case of anxiety that they had seen? I mean, you know, to give you a window into it, I think my first week in the clinic in America, I probably barely spoke to anyone. And I remember just shuffling around in a hoodie, not really ever wanting to stop or keep still because it was so unbearable. But if I was just shuffling around, that's kind of something to keep me moving. I just couldn't speak. I mean, I literally couldn't interact with anyone. I could only manage my, what felt like a visceral, physical, overwhelming discomfort. Yeah. And I could barely sleep. I mean, the good thing is then I started to get a little bit of medication. The psychiatrist was very careful with me, found me something mild that I saw me every day, try and nurse me onto this medication. And I began to get better. Mm. And then, you know, then I was stable enough to do the, the aftercare work, which was what really helped. I had these gigantic unaddressed wounds. In my family, we never talked about my dead mother. It was another problem. You know, it was completely taboo and off, off the table. So I think everyone's hope was, well, this happened before we could remember it. Let's just forget about it and move on. And I, I wish that was the case. Mm. Unfortunately, the, the wreckage of it lived on in my body and in my nervous system. And it was just waiting. It was just waiting to be triggered. And do you think that these problems start at a really young age? Well, I would turn that around on its head and I'd say that the, your advantages are built up over the first three years of your life quite successfully. So when you're born, you're not really able to manage the extremes of your experience. And it's quite physical. If you see a baby in distress, it's not just crying a bit. Its entire body is racked with distress. Then the process of soothing that child usually involves something very physical, like rocking, singing, cradling, rapping. Um, and what a child learns, if, if their needs are responded to in a way which is reasonably appropriate and reasonably consistent, they will usually internalize, begin to internalize a way of managing their own extreme uh, nervous system movements. And then what happens is um, the infant becomes a toddler, becomes a young child, and they get good at this. And they start to experiment with you know, going to nursery school for a few hours and coming home and regulating themselves. Um, so if you miss that experience, if you don't get it, you're into an adaptation effectively. You're trying to manage yourself, but without the tools. Mm. So in a normal situation, like let's say you're in the kitchen and someone drops a plate behind you. It's a bit of a shock. You turn around, you see the plate's been dropped. You understand what's happened. It's no big deal. And what you'll notice is that your heart has started to beat fast, but your brain has got the information there's no danger. And then you can kind of feel your heart is still beating fast. And then gradually it'll calm down. And you know, within seconds, you'll be back to where you were before. Now, when things are a bit more overwhelming than that, that something interrupts that in the middle, like let's say a car crash, um, people talk about kind of almost leaving their body or time slowing down. People are aware of this more frozen response to threat. And we, you know, we all know about fight and flight, and we talk about freeze as another response to threat. The transition from one to the other marks the beginning of a problem. So if stuff freezes in your system, then what is supposed to happen, and what you observe in mammals in the wild, is it will unfreeze once the danger passes and you'll kick and run and scream and shout and shake and twitch, and then it's done. So if you don't complete that, if stuff remains kind of residual in your system, then it's kind of like having kegs of gunpowder in your basement, uh, and then you go into life. And people just start wandering around your basement with sparklers in their hands. And what happens is that they'll, you know, they'll bump into the wrong keg of gunpowder and it'll go off. 
So and this seems to have two effects, and certainly I can, you know, I'm a living example of this. Mm. One is that you become powerfully averse and afraid of the material in your basement, um, because when it's sparked off, you're basically taken back to the worst times in your life and invited to live through them again and finish them. And we don't do that. We, instead of finishing them and living through them, we avoid them and restrict them and God knows what, do everything we can to avoid feeling like that. But the other thing that happens, which I've observed in many, many people, including myself, is I think unconsciously, we actually want to do this because what we want is to clean out the gunpowder. It's uncomfortable carrying this baggage around with us for our whole life. So at the same time, we're driven to avoid the things we're most afraid of, but we're also driven towards them mm -hmm. to make them happen. So somehow, with all of my skills and advantages in life, I managed to bring myself to a state where you know, on the eve of the birth of my fifth child, I became completely financially wiped out, which is quite a skill. I, mean, I couldn't even do it if I tried. And I did it by accident. And arguably, it was the catalyst and the beginning and the triggering of healing all of that unhealed stuff, which now, you know, I feel like I'm in so much better shape and I can deal with loss in a way now, which is pretty much, I'd say, manageable by me yeah. rather than totally out of control. I mean, it still hurts, but mm. it doesn't kind of incapacitate me mm. like it did before. And you found this, I don't know if I can call it cure, but in Arizona, the nervous system. Yeah. So the aftercare unit I went to was informed by a man called Peter Levine. What his intelligence was and what he's added to the, you know, he's a great guru in the field. What he's added to the field is this idea that the activity in the body, uh, which specifically, I think in this case, is the activity in the nervous system, is the beginning of a chain of dominoes. And what we do in sensitive mental and behavioral health is tend to address the dominoes way down the chain as if they're the problem. Um, and then you spend a lot of time and effort kind of hauling those dominoes up. They still got the whole chain of dominoes leaning on them. And so what he was able to do was really help people to begin at the beginning. You know, where did this begin to go wrong and what's not yet been solved and finished? So you could say it's about taking the problem back into the body. It's often talked about as body psychotherapy or body psychologies. And so what's revolutionary about it really is this idea that the thinking human brain, which is where we do what we think is our mental health treatment, is actually not very useful. Mm -hmm. It hasn't been our friend because we think we are that brain and only that brain. But in fact, before that brain is even turned on, so much is happening. And if you don't go under the hood and work there, you're really just spitting into a hurricane a lot of the time. And this is why you know, it's a lot of people find frustration with what you might consider to be conventional psychotherapy, because although it helps in the short term, they often find that nothing much changes in the long term. Yeah. I'd like to take you back to the analogy of the chain of dominoes, mm. um, because I think what happens is the first domino is something Stephen Porges calls neuroception which is basically all of your senses and everything else as well as or perhaps instead of your thinking brain is perceiving a threat. Uh, it may not be right, but nonetheless, the, the kind of physiological signals to your brainstem are threat in the environment. This then starts a whole series of physiological changes in your body, which uh, if you're a gazelle 
and there's a lion on the horizon, this is a good thing. I mean, this is what's supposed to happen. Mm. So you're supposed to mobilize and get worried and scared and fretful and twitchy and activated when there's a threat in your environment. That's how evolution has worked, that you survive because you're good at dealing with threat. Um, so if you take that into the human system, I think what happens next is you'll notice changes in your body. So, you know, you might even spring out of your chair before you even realize what's going on. But certainly people notice things like their heartbeat will go up or they become hot. So you, you get that vigilance, that kind of tunnel vision. Mm -hmm. uh, noises seem louder. Places seem more crowded. Those kind of things go on. And then what happens is your cognitive system kicks in, so your perception. And what we try and do is match our perception to our neuroception. So you've got the body returning, say, a fire alarm. There's no words with it. And then the brain starts looking for a fire. The only person in the room is Cressida. So I start thinking, well, Cressida maybe is the fire. Cressida's trying to get me to do something I don't want to do, isn't she? I, mean, I don't trust Cressida anymore now. Now I'm afraid of Cressida. And when I talk about anxiety, I feel it really deeply in my body. Mm. I, could, I remember times when my yeah, solar too. plexus was literally trembling for weeks and weeks and weeks. I couldn't stop it. Mm. And people, you know, doctors would say, oh, you're a bit worried. You need a bit of CBT. And I'm like, no talking about anything is going to stop my solar plexus trembling. There's something else going on here. But then worry is obviously something else that, you know, I sit around and worry, you know, will I ever get another job or my children, you know, whatever it is. And I think if you, if you looked at the brain, instead of looking at the brain as one place, if you look at the brain and its connection to the body as maybe a hundred different decision centers, what has to happen from the brain is it has to decide, it has to send one signal to the body, like, you know, you're going to run or you're going to fight or you're going to freeze. And managing all these different places of the brain is a kind of a, a project that we're not consciously aware of, but we do it. Um, so whether we call it fear or anxiety or trembling or sweats or whatever, pretty much just which part of the brain we're talking about, which part of the physiological experience we're discussing. That brings me on to The Invisible Lion. Right. Which is the book that you have most recently written. And can you tell me what The Invisible Lion actually is? Yeah, sure. Well, the book comes out of many, many hours of doing consultations and assessments with people. And I find myself saying the same things over and over again, trying to illustrate these points about the nervous system and its relationship with mental health and behavioral health. And one of the stories I started to tell was you see someone running down the road and they're kind of bare to the waist and wildly looking around and screaming and twitching, they have no shoes on. They're running towards you. And what are you going to think? You know, what do you think of this person? And you know, a lot of people say, well, they seem crazy. And I say, do you want to help them? Do you want to cross the road? And most people say, I want to cross the road and avoid them. And I say, and then coming around the corner behind them, you see a fully grown adult male lion charging after them. Now, what do you think of them? Most people would say, well, they don't seem crazy at all anymore. They seem completely normal. And I say, and if you could help them, would you? you know, let's say you had a gun and you knew how to use it. And they say, yeah, yeah, you know, pretty much I'd try and help them. And I think what's really important about that is that the, the man in the story is exactly the same. So his behavior, his biology, his neurobiology, his anatomy, everything about him is exactly the same. And in one story, we say he's crazy and we want to get away from him. And in another story, we say he's normal and we want to help him. And the only difference is the context. 
So my thesis, I suppose, is a lot of what we now uh, wish to label as mental health or behavioral health or relationship problems is actually the behavior of people whose context we can't see. And therefore, there's an invisible line. That's why it's called the invisible line. And then you ask the question, well, why can't we, you know, what's going on here? And the answer is that the lion is no longer there in the environment today, but it's still there in their nervous system because they haven't finished responding to it from before. So really, it's about understanding that a lot of people's behavior and thoughts and relationships are derivative of unfinished responses to earlier threats that they are now trying to complete in the here and now. So they look crazy until you can understand and connect with the original threat, which was usually at some time earlier. And a lot of the time, therefore, we're either massively over-responding to things in the here and now, as if uh, they include loads of things from before, or the other response we have to threat is to under-respond. So freezing is a response to threat. And so we're either over-responding or under-responding. Uh, it's very, very difficult to respond exactly right. The exact amount of activation you need to mobilize yourself to deal with the exact amount of threat that's really there in the here and now. And when I say threat, it doesn't have to be a lion. It can just be, you know, your, your girlfriend's a bit aggy with you today or whatever it is. Yeah. But we, if you, particularly if you look at relationships, you tend to see people either overreact or underreact a lot. Mm. In the middle, there's this idea of a Goldilocks type reaction, which is where you really want to be. So you follow this line of thinking through and you look at how would it affect your biochemistry? How would it affect your brain chemistry? How would it affect your body? Uh, you know, you take it down the vagus nerve into the gut where people have lots of symptoms who have um, emotional health problems. And you see that all these things that have been observed in psychology and even in medicine begin to join up. So, for example, attachment theory has been around since the 50s. And generally speaking, what they discovered is kids are either rather overreactive or rather shut down or they're just right which is exactly what we've just been talking about so you know all these problems that we've seen in uh, mental and behavioral health become explainable from nervous system theory whereas most of what's come before if not i'd say all of it including psychiatry is observation it's it's phenomenological you're looking at the phenomena and saying oh look you know if you look at a thousand people uh, you know, 300 of them seem to be shut down and 300 of them seem to be really edgy. And we call this anxiety and we call it depression. Yeah. So the invisible line is really a way into understanding that there's an explanation for an awful lot of unexplained physical health problems. Almost every mental health problem, which is really unexplained when you think about it. Um, and a huge amount of relationship problems as well. So if we take something like social anxiety, which is definitely something... I have, when I go into big a big group of people, I feel like I just, at times, freeze. Can we link the invisible line to something like social anxiety? Yeah, sure. I, I think if you've got a lot of uh, unfinished business in your nervous system, for example, what this would mean is that there's it's like a stream that has loads of boulders in it. It's just not going to run well. And we call that a dysregulated nervous system. Now, evolutionarily, you've got a few totally different circuits which you can mobilize in reaction to threat. So you can freeze, uh, you can fight or flight, you can just be a bit hypervigilant if you want. You also, and the latest development in higher functioning mammals is to socialize. 
Believe it or not, socializing and the social engagement system is actually a way of dealing with the existential threat of life. So we try to build strong connections, strong networks. We try to become dominant in groups as well, mm. because actually that gives us a better survival chance. And you can see that in the wild, it absolutely plays out. So the thing that happens in the body is that as our neuroception, our body's perception of threat shifts, we go through these different stages like they're different gears, which can be very confusing because they're very different things to do. I mean, for example, you can see a gazelle running at full speed and in, a, in an instant go into a freeze. So the transition between these states uh, is extreme. And so if you think about it, if you go into a room with the intention to deal with the threat of you know, 50 mammals in a room at a work party by socializing, what's happening is your body is returning this kind of neuroception that, that threat seems to be higher than you were hoping for, which may be completely untrue, but it's, it's because you're dysregulated. It's kind of all the boulders in that stream that are kind of mucking up the signals. Mm. The next thing that'll happen is it'll, it'll just jump straight into hypervigilance. You probably know that feeling, like, you know, you go into a group and you're hoping it's all going to be okay. And then you suddenly start to get that kind of tunnel vision, you know, noise is a bit loud. Yeah. It's really hard to concentrate on anyone's saying yeah. because you can't teach someone Pythagoras when they're running away from a lion. And then, of course, it's harder to socialize and connect. And, of course, the social engagement system is trying to connect to make allies, to make connections, to feel safe. Mm. And this is working against you. So then that's a problem. And then you start to get fidgety. You go from there to fight flight, where you basically want to just tell everyone to leave you alone and run away. And then that doesn't work because, you know, you're at your parents' Christmas party or something. You're not allowed to fight anyone and you're not allowed to run away. And so then you shift to the next one, which is shut down, which is freeze. And you probably won't fall on the floor in a dead faint. But you basically kind of just vacate your situation. You kind of leave your body. You dissociate. People typically dissociate is, is our favorite way of freezing. And then you're just there and you're a zombie. And I think this is what happened to me a lot in my childhood and adult life, early adult life. And people would say I was just kind of, you know, too cool. And they'd think I was arrogant or removed or disinterested in them. Mm. I was just dissociated. Mm. I was just frozen. But what's interesting is how it manifests itself in different ways for different people. And you'll either freeze, you'll either have that flight or uh, fight response. Mm -hmm. So... In our daily lives, in First World Britain, we never go to a party and, and encounter a life or death threat. So we should all be relaxed all the time in our social engagement system. The fact that we're not shows how much baggage we're carrying around. And that baggage is accumulated in different ways, not just because of our environments growing up, but also because of our innate personalities growing up and how much we found different things threatening at different times in life. And one of the things that happens at a great party, if you like, successfully, is that where everyone starts, they gradually more and more move into social engagement system. And the best feeling you can have is when you're in a room of people and they're all in their social engagement system and it feels so connected and safe and wonderful. Because a lot of the time what happens, uh, depending on different experiences in life, is that connection actually feels a bit dangerous. And yet connection is also the thing that triggers all those warm, fuzzy feelings of safety. So think about what people do at a party. Well, they drink often, which is actually a perfect chemical antidote to the sympathetic nervous system. So it, it dampens down the, the initial impulse to be fearful, although it, you know, it can <laughs> remove inhibitions later on so the fight and flight parts can come out <laughs> quite strongly. 
And the other thing people often do is they chat. You know, they talk about anything and everything. It's of no consequence, but it helps them to connect. And then people do things like dancing. So dancing is a great regulator. You know, music is a great regulator. Dancing is a great regulator. Even eating helps people to regulate. Because if you're running away from a lion, you wouldn't stop for a hamburger. So if you're stopping for a hamburger, it kind of tells the body. All these things are bi-directional. It tells the body you're no longer running away from a lion. Mm. And when you're just talking about fear, I'm just going to quote, you said, we now live in a world driven by fear. And this creates the desire to eradicate all of the triggers that caused it. We want to build walls, hoard money, be secure for life because our nervous systems are run by fear. So if this is the truth, then what, how do we find the opposite of that? Sure. Well, I think what you're talking about there is a dysregulated nervous system. So this is a nervous system with lots of baggage in it. Yeah. So what happens then is that, remember I said earlier about it's kind of like living with kegs of gunpowder in your basement. People are wandering around there with sparklers. We actually begin to see the sparklers as if they're kegs of gunpowder. So we see the external world as being as threatening as the unfinished business inside of us. And so walking around the world is a very fearful experience. And our response to the world at the moment appears to be that we always need more. It doesn't matter how rich you are, how successful, or how beautiful, you always need more because it's never enough because the danger is not out there. The danger is in here. And there's nothing we can do about that other than travel inwards, go into the worst places inside of ourselves, allow it to process and discharge and release. And so if, if that's the right model, what you'd expect to see is people constantly trying to manage the external world way beyond the point that actually makes any difference to their survival. And that is basically what we see. And mm. you know, it's also having a catastrophic effect on our environment, on our planet, on our communities, on our relationships, etc. Now, the opposite of that, you can see if you look at people who actually spend a huge amount of time and effort going inside and heal themselves from the inside out. I'm thinking of people like, say, you know, monks in a monastery who meditate for 25 years up a mountain. That's really all they're doing is they're managing the internal world instead of the external world. And what you tend to find is that then they become enormously untriggered by the world. It's like there's no gunpowder at all. So when you're walking around with a sparkler, their response is, oh, look, you have a sparkler. So when someone comes and starts, I don't know, shouting at the Dalai Lama, he doesn't get triggered and shout back. He would look at them and say, this person seems upset. I wonder what's happened to them. And actually, that then is a response of compassion to the world. And you know, I, I, I do genuinely think that if your own internal system is in really good shape, you can offer a lot more compassion and love to the difficulties that you find around you and outside of you. Whereas if your own internal system is absolutely chock-a-block with the things that you're most afraid of going back to, everything outside of you looks dangerous and you become fearful. Yeah. And I think that transition from fear to love, oddly enough, is pretty much the instruction or the intention of every spiritual practice that's ever been on this planet. Mm. So whether it's prayer or meditation or Tai Chi or mindfulness or whatever, the instructions from most of these uh, ancient or modern systems are be a bit nicer to other people, have a look at yourself. Mm. And uh, funnily enough, that's exactly what your nervous system needs you to do too. So taking the fear of loss, 
when you have a dysregulated nervous system, mm-hmm. your behavior would look very, very different to having a regulated nervous system, but still having that yeah. same fear. So imagine what I'm like with a girlfriend. Okay. No, I mean, historically, from beginning to today, I'm divorced now and... Uh, you know, so I'm no different today to I was when I was 15 when all this started. Interruptions in what might look like the constancy of a relationship used to feel enormously catastrophic for me because I had experienced a catastrophic loss of the first woman that loved me and that I loved. And it was unfinished. You know, it was unprocessed. It was just lying there. So what would happen to you physically? Well, I mean, you can imagine I was pretty clingy. Mm. I also, I, you know, I think about my early relationships when I was a teenager, a young adult. I put so much of my sense of my life on that relationship and keep very little of myself. So it felt like, uh, you know, that was the thing that was keeping me alive. You know, and obviously you can understand that I lost my mother as a baby. So if I was going to recover a kind of sniff of that connection, it was going to feel like the source of life for me. Um, and then, you know, when relationships would end, I'd have a proper breakdown about it. And, uh, you know, I first started having panic attacks in my mid-twenties when a five-year relationship ended. That's when I first started having therapy and exploring these things. So in in terms of my relationship with loss, it was always people and then I suppose money as well. As I got older, money became a more important existential driver, particularly trying to provide for for a growing family. But it's also interesting how I really managed to drive my life towards absolute loss, in a sense. Mm. And it's odd. I mean, many, many things in my life I feel like I've drifted away from. Uh, So, you know, communities, maybe to a certain extent school friends, but, you know, people do. Uh, Maybe to a certain extent my family, but these things happen. Um, I've been married and divorced. These things happen. You know, I made a lot of money. I lost a lot of money. These things happen. But it's kind of hard to see anywhere where it didn't happen yeah. in my life. I, you know, I find it, I, I mean, you know, I'm still on good terms with my children, but I'm a d- single father. I don't see them every day. I don't know. It's almost like there's nothing that I've connected to and contacted and held, held dear that I haven't subsequently lost. But I think after my treatment, as I began to clear all this stuff out of my nervous system, that's begun to shift. So, you know, I'm good friends with my ex-wife. Um, I get on well and I feel connected and close to my children. The business, which is a clinic, which, you know, really just replicated the clinic I was treated in in Arizona, Mm. that's going to celebrate its eighth birthday tomorrow. Yeah. So oddly enough, since I started working on myself, I began to reverse the process of creating loss in my external world. I haven't quite cracked the relationship problem yet, but... (laughs) I, I, I often think that relationships are the PhD of uh, emotional recovery. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to looking forward to earning my diploma. <laughs> and just talking about uh, regulating the nervous system and, as you put it in your book, putting the lion to sleep, mm. how can we, without going to treatment, mm-hmm. how can we do that? I mean, you, you did talk about going inwards, and is that mindfulness meditation... Yeah, I think, first of all, there's no way to answer that question, which is the perfect answer for everybody. And it's partly because these problems exist on a broad scale of severity. And I don't want to pretend I can give a flip answer for a serious mental health breakdown no. that just you know, is the answer. 
Generally speaking, what you're trying to do is recover your nervous system by dealing with your unfinished business. And generally speaking, that's done by creating a nice, safe place, if you like, like a kind of scaffolding, and then allowing the, the unfinished business to emerge rather than preventing it from coming out because it feels uncomfortable. That's why I wrote the book, because the allowing is a decision. And you're not going to make a decision unless you're persuaded it's a good idea. And the only part of you that I can persuade is your conscious thinking brain. So the book is actually designed to reprogram your cognitive brain to welcome the opportunity for discharging your nervous system rather than not. But what you're really trying to do is you're trying to get your trying to get you and your environment into a slightly less chaotic space. So this is what I would call the kind of scaffolding or the boundaries or the containment. And there's a, there's a very specific way to do that, which is start to reframe your reality from the point of view of your nervous system. So instead of saying things like, oh, you know, my husband's such an arsehole, you could say, I notice when John raises his voice, I feel really triggered and dysregulated. And then you can start to look at what that feels like, what that's about. You might say, you know, I notice I get hot and my tummy is shaking. So this, this is step one, which is to stop looking at the world as a problem out there and start to look at the world as people wandering around with sparklers that help you to then find your kegs of gunpowder. Because mm. only then can you do something about it. So the first thing is to stop the chaos, stop the madness on the outside, and then start to reframe it in your head as an idea about yourself rather than about other people or fate or circumstance. Then you find it. So then the question is, what do you do with it? Well, there's some, there's some really good somatic exercises to, to, to take you into your body at that point and out of your head. What you're really trying to do is find where is that problem in, in, my, in my physical space and what does it feel like? And if I get closer to it, what always seems to happen in my experience is if you help someone to feel safe to stay with it, it shifts, it moves. And then everything else down that chain of domino changes, including people's fear, including people's thoughts, including people's sense of reality. Um, and there's some techniques to do that. And they're largely derivative of Peter Levine's work on somatic experiencing. But they're also facilitated by all these things people have been doing really since the dawn of healthcare, which mm. is like meditation and mindfulness is a modern reformulation of that, tai chi, yoga, even dancing. And all of these things bring you into your somatic, into your body. So if you can do both, if you can take, you know, just accept that we're a modern species and we spend our whole time thinking, and therefore we think a lot about things that have happened to us. If you can reframe that and find the piece that's about me rather than about the outside world, and then take the leap of taking that piece into the body, find it in the body, what will happen is that automatically your limbic system will reconnect, that limbic system, your mammal and reptile brain, will reconnect you to the original lion. And the body will start to do what it's been trying to do for 30 or 40 years, which is finish the problem, mm. discharge the energy, finish the response to threat. And you might cry, you might remember something, you might not, you might start trembling, you might feel hot, you might feel cold, all sorts of things might happen. But the key question to ask yourself when that's happening is, can I let this happen? And that's why we do all the psychological education, because we want you to answer yes, because you believe it's the best thing for your mental and physical health, which it is. And then you find that, you know, whether it's a few minutes or a bit longer later, things die down, that subsides, and you feel differently. And it's like magic. 
I've seen it so many times that people just can't believe it, but it's like magic. Mm. There are just three questions that I ask everyone who I interview, and that is, what is the place that you go to, and that could be in your mind, or that could be a physical place, when you feel fearful? First question. So when I feel fearful, what, you know, what I do with my mind is I try and remind myself of everything I just told you, which is that you know, really try and rein myself in from solving the problem with logic and with data and with information from my environment. And I try and remind myself that I'm responding to something real that is not in the room with me right now. And if I want to do something about that, I'll have to go into my body to find the connection to what it's really about. And if I can do that, then I might find some relief and be able to carry on with what I'm doing. But, you know, it's a really important question what you ask, because that's our, that's our default situation. Where do we go to in our mind? And, I, you know, I've spent 10 years learning to go to a place where I remind myself that there's nothing, there's no point in thinking about this anymore. But I'm like anyone else. I can, you know, I can loop on thinking about a problem. I can have the same conversation with myself every 10 seconds for an hour when I'm triggered about something. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and you know, someone once described it to me as renting space in your brain. It's like somebody rents space in your brain. It's particularly with people, you know, I'm annoyed with them, I'm annoyed with them. Why did they do that? Why did they do that? You go round and round, and even I have to eventually remind myself, it's a complete waste of my time. And what I need to do is get out of my head and into my body and find a way out that works. Mm. So, it's a tricky problem because once you're triggered, you lose executive function. You lose your prefrontal cortex. You can't remember everything you know. Yeah, I think when to calm any fear that I have, if I would think of a place, I would go into my imagination. And and I think that's a way of, you know, I start dreaming about scenarios and uh, stories. And I think that's a way of checking out and a way of escaping the feeling. Well, you're altering your neuroception because you're basically taking your imagination to a different place. And it's a perfectly valid recovery strategy. Mm. And one of the things you learn in these methods is that you want to help your clients have a safe place to go back to. So you, you try and think about what are the smells, the sounds, the memories, the associations with the place you feel safest in the whole world. Mm. You can reset your nervous system with imagination. You can also freak yourself out with your imagination. <laughs> Because, you know, the inputs of threat don't just come from the outside. They come from our thoughts definitely, as well. Definitely, definitely. I think thoughts can be such a threat. Yeah. And the second question is song or piece of music that you go to, listen to? It's interesting because if I'm listening to music in the car, I'll listen to different radio stations or different music depending on where my nervous system is, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny, I find classical music can be quite soothing when I'm a bit wound up. I also find it can be really annoying. <laughs> so it depends what kind of you know, fight or flight state I'm in. I think that the, the kind of sounds that I, I find most calming are the, these kind of Tibetan gongs or uh, chanting type music, you know, that kind of very low, bassy, rhythmical. Um, you know, those are great sounds to settle the nervous system. And it's no accident that that's what they've been doing in these monasteries yeah. for millennia because it works. And the last question, what would you do if you were not afraid? I'd do a podcast with you. <laughs> yeah. 
If I was not afraid, well, I often think whatever happens, this is better than spending four months in a mental hospital. Mm. And I'll never be that bad again. I know I'll never be that sick again. I'll never be that unwell again because the stuff that took me there is no longer in my system. It's no longer in my body. So a lot of what I do now, I think, is reasonably fearless. But I do think that it's still difficult to be fearless with people. I still have that, that kind of pathway of anxiety that's reasonably well developed because it's kind of what I grew up with. And I think if I had no fear at all, I'd be more pro-social. <laughs> I'd make more effort to spend more time with more people yeah. and I'd be less reclusive because I think I'm pretty fearless these days about my work because I just don't care. You know, if people don't agree with me or they're not interested in what I'm doing or if I lose all my money again, I really don't care anymore. I feel yeah. like I've learned something and I'm passionate about communicating it. But in my personal life, I definitely could be less afraid of loss and therefore more committed to risk. Yeah. Mm. Thank you so much. And if people want to hear about more what you do and you in general, where can they go? Well, I have a website, benjaminfry.co.uk. There's a website about the Invisible Line, which has lots of resources and things you can download called theinvisiblelion.com. <laughs> um, and if you're interested in treatment through these ideas, the clinic I set up is called Chiron House or Chiron Clinics, and the website is chironclinics.com. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Fear Itself. If you enjoyed this episode, it would be hugely appreciated if you could subscribe on your favourite podcast app and maybe share it with a friend who you think might like it. You can also find me on Instagram at CressidaBonus. I'd like to give a special thanks to the producer and editor Hannah Varrell, James and Kazra at One Fine Play for their fantastic studio space, and Malt Martin for his beautiful music. Tune in next week when I will be chatting to another great guest about all things fear. Thanks, guys, and see you next week.